Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm the host. <laughs> I'm the host, Frank Shafaro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we're also joined with my colleague, Tim Copeland, who is an editor at The Block as well. He published a piece a few weeks ago, Multi-Chain Ceases Operations as CEO Sisters Detained in China, while holding $220 million of funds. So this has been one of the bigger headlines that we've been tracking here at The Block. And of course, also on the other side of the mic are our guests, the perfect pair to unpack this story. We're joined by Phantom Foundation Director Andre Crunje and Phantom Foundation CEO Michael Kong. Um, maybe before we dive in, Tim, you can kind of walk our listeners through the story very briefly. It's obviously one of the more provocative headlines that we've seen, and then we can jump into some some questions. Yeah, it's been a really interesting development over the last few months. Originally, it kind of began with rumors that the CEO potentially had been detained uh, in China. Um, the multi-chain team was very quiet about this for, for quite a while. And then this was at a time when the project was having a lot of uh, technical issues. Uh, transactions weren't going through. Uh, there were kind of multiple routers that were down. Uh, and they weren't. the team wasn't able to kind of fix these issues, which was really bizarre. Then eventually they kind of said like a vague statement and there was like a force majeure, like an event outside of their control. Soon after that, the a large amount of funds got hacked from the project mm. uh, and got kind of moved away from it uh, on multiple multiple chains. And then Multichain uh, kind of rescued some funds uh, and, and, and moved some funds supposedly to safety. Uh, and then recently they did a message which kind of said, kind of they revealed everything they said yes the ceo had been detained they had been out of contact they said that they did manage to fix the technical issues uh, during that period by getting access to the uh, ceo's computer they said that when the funds got hacked the ip address appeared to belong to a china uh, ip address they said that the sister uh, the ceo's sister helped them move funds to safety but then the sister is now detained. Ultimately, it seems China kind of is still has still detained the uh, CEO. Now has his sister uh, seemingly has control over the the protocol uh, and potentially over over a large chunk of the funds, including both the funds that were hacked um, and the funds that were uh, moved by the sister. Andre, maybe we can start with you. If there's anything you'd want to add to Tim's summary of the story and how has the situation evolved? Yeah. So um, first things first, just in terms of nomenclature, definitely not a hack. Um, this was not a hack. This was not a exit scam. This was not a rug pull. Um, this was two unfortunate events. This was one, a government agency, which Kong, we're allowed to say the police, aren't we? I, I just want to confirm with you. Yeah, yeah well, well Modichain has said publicly that it's the Kongren police, apparently. That, that's what they've claimed. All right, so so with now, now, again, a lot of this is unverified, and we've, we've been spending a lot of our own time and resources to try and verify what and where we can. Um, at this time, all we have been able to verify is that it is the Kunming police and it is an active investigation. Um, then sort of unverified stuff that has kind of either happened via the rumor mill or via our contact with their staff or, you know, third party interactions was that this started as some 
scam or Ponzi scheme or exit scam that bridged their illegal funds via multi-chain. When the police traced these funds, they saw it go to multi-chain and not understanding how a bridge works, all they see is, you know, there was a bunch of USD stolen on X-chain and it is currently sitting in multi-chain's control. So they then got the multi-chain team involved, arrested. I don't know if it's currently actually under house arrest or under real arrest. We don't have any of that verified. Um, but they then assumed multi-chain team's involvement. So that's the first unfortunate thing that happened. But again, not a scam, not a um, rug pull, not a hack. The, the second unfortunate thing, which is grossly unfortunate, is that somehow, we're not sure how, but somehow the CEO... Zhao Jun did have access to the funds. So he was either able to recreate the MPC key or he had enough validators in his own personal control that he could approve a transaction um, or he had enough pieces of the shard so that he could rebuild the private key and thereby the police could gain access to these funds. Um, not sure which, again, that part is purely speculation, but somehow they gained privileged access to the bridge, and that allowed them to withdraw those funds. Um, I'd say those are the really two only major qualifications I would have on the on the current thing. Everything else is, is rumorable. One, one thing I'd also like to add to what, uh, to Tim's summary, is that between like the router, some of the routers for multi-chain going offline and uh, um, around late May, 2023 20, uh, and the so-called force majeure event that multi-chain reported on and the first significant movement of funds from multi-chain to external wallet addresses on the 7th of July uh, 2023 is that <laughs> multi-chain you know essentially reassured people that the um the uh the, that the service was safe and you know that basically from their actions because not only did they keep the bridge running when they could have you know, turn off the bridge or warn people to bridge off, um, especially since apparently they knew that the CEO had, you know, ultimate access to all of the funds. Um, but, in, but in fact, they even repaired the routers that you mentioned, Tim, like went offline uh, for a, a number of different chains. And so the analogy I kind of like to use is, you know, you wouldn't get into a car that you believe could, you know, blow up at any moment, right? But you would get into a car as a passenger if you believe that the car was, you know, safe and that you could use it to drive from point A to point B. Like, what I mean by that is that, you know, by the multi-chain team's actions, you would think that the bridge is safe because, you know, it continues to operate. You could move money in, you could move money out. They repaired the routers, meaning that they want the bridge to keep operating. And indeed, the bridge kept operating uh, for about a month and a half. And then suddenly on the 7th of July is when the funds... Uh, this, the first significant movement of funds get taken off. And that to me is a bit like, you know, strange. I, I don't know why the bridge would, would, would keep running, you know, given the circumstances, but but it was. So I think a lot of people got the impression, including us at Phantom, that, hey, you know, the CEO not being in contact is, is obviously not a great thing. But, you know, given how the MPC nodes are supposed to work and confirmation is supposed to work. You know, it seems like that the service can keep running regardless of whether the CEO is around or not. Um, but obviously we were mistaken about that. Um, but that was definitely the impression that we were under. And I think basically all of the multi-chain users were under and, and other chains as well. 
And a significant amount of their team as well. Michael, can you provide maybe a bit of background on Phantom's relationship with multi-chain, how it began and maybe what initially attracted you to the platform? I, I think Andre is, is probably better to answer that question since he had a earlier relationship. Sure. So um, we, like just when, just when DeFi was really getting going, um, there was a necessity for assets to be able to move between bridge to move between blockchains. Um, at that time, you know, this is now, what, or late 2020, early 2021, um, only multi-chain existed as a bridge. So we had two choices at that point in time. One is we could try and build our own bridge, something we don't have expertise in. Um, and it eventually would have just been a multi-sig. So, you know, it comes with its own security risks, etc. cetera. Um, or the alternative was, hey, let's give this responsibility to someone who specializes in building bridges. Um, at that time, you know, multi-chain was, well, any swap back then, um, they were really the only name in the space. Um, their MPC tech, you know, has become a standard um, in a lot of the MPC technologies. Um, a lot of their research, you know, was co-developed by a bunch of really well-known security names. So like it checked all the right boxes. Um, our our engagement with them really was that... And you got a lot of assurances. A lot, a lot. Yeah, can you expand on what some of those assurances uh, were? Yeah, I, I just want to finish off how we, like like a lot of people think Phantom is very actively involved with multi-chain. So, so what happened is back then when we had asked them to deploy their bridge on Phantom, um, they're, back then they were any swap.exchange, I think, and their, their UI was horrible. Like you, it was overly complex. It was very hard to figure out how to actually swap assets or how to bridge stuff. So what we did is we made our own website, multichain.org, and we made it like a Uniswap style interface where, you know, it's just chain asset and you just swap to the next thing. Um, they liked that. They asked us if they could take that over from us. We gave it to them. They rebranded. Um, but you know, that, that, that UI and the contracts that went with us, that was the extent of our relationship. Um, on that as well, you know, one thing, one thing that, that has been hard is like Phantom has taken a very large brunt of sort of the negative press here. And like, we are affected, you know, we do have TVL impacted, um, but you know, there's, there's 25 chains impacted in this. I mean, multi-chain was deployed across the entire ecosystem of the $220 million in TVL that, that is sitting in wallets controlled currently by, we believe the police. Um, of that, our number is about 60 million. Now, now that's obviously still an astronomical number, and that's why we're doing everything in our power to try and help the users that ended up losing those funds or, or rather currently not having access to it. Um, but, you know, it's not just Phantom. I mean, Multichain was a huge organization integrated everywhere, backed by some of the biggest supporters in the space. Um, so it's a very different situation. Then jumping back to your other thing on the assurances, um, Two, two, two major things. Well, well, when we initially started with them, you know, there was there was two main things, right? Thing number one is the MPC protocol itself. How secure is it? And at that point, there wasn't any formal verification or any kind of stuff like that. But there was the published research by um, 
someone who, who who I thought of very highly at the time, still do, Stephen Goldfeeder, who, you know, he went on um, to start their own thing. Um, but he helped Zhao Jun and them actually develop that protocol or they helped him. I'm not sure how that relationship was. But, you know, that was a very strong, solid tick for us. And then the other thing was in terms of access to the validators, you know, who actually ran them, who had controlled of them. Um, and that, you know, they had assured us at the start was independent team man, team members and independent locations. Um, hindsight, wish we had verified that independently because it seems it was all run on one AWS. But, you know, when we spoke to the team, they said it's independent. When we, different team members, when you go into their docs, it says that these are run by different organizations in different geolocations. Um, and, and the thing is, you know, like, like obviously when something like this happens, you spend a lot of what ifs and a lot of hindsight 2020. And like we, I try to think what else could we have checked? What else could we have verified? What else could we have, you know, had third party some kind of proof for? Um, but, but even, even if we had, you, you know, it's it's not hard to prove that validators in, are in different areas, even if they are actually in a single place. You you need a VPN and a secondary account. It's not like like the extent of that backdoor means they would never have disclosed it. And I, and I think that's the big thing. Like like just the fact that that existed and it wasn't disclosed is feels like the betrayal, if I can call it that. Um, I don't know if I should call it that, but that, you know, that's, that's where, cause, cause if we had known that there was any kind of backdoor other than the validators needing to agree together, there's, there's no way we would have like asked any of the dApps on Phantom to like use those assets, or we would have told them as toxic assets, you need to stay away from them. Um, so I think that was the big thing, you know, so I mean, 99 assurances, but it doesn't matter if there's one backdoor that no one knows about. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, obviously, Circle and Tether had frozen over sixty-five million in assets tied to the attack. Can mm. you unpack maybe what discussions with those two entities have looked like? So, so we didn't we didn't um, open the police cases that were provided to them that got them to freeze the assets. We have actually been trying to work with them to try and find out who did it so that we can work with those people to try and then sort of go the multi-chain route. Because um, a big a big problem we're currently facing, you know, is, um, is, is locustandi. It's like proving how much of those assets are ours and how much rights do we actually have to ask questions or get involved. So, so we're actually trying to track down who are these big users who had these assets frozen so that we can get them engaged because they definitely have an interest and they are definitely able to be able to stop this. Um, but, you know, something like, like the phantom token itself, that wasn't handled by multi-chain. So, so like there was no damage on that side to us. Um, so, we, we, we weren't involved in those chats. Um, we wish we were um, because we actually are currently trying to track down those people. Mike, I don't know if we've discovered anything else along since, but I, I think that's last I heard. Just to go back about like what happened with, with the freezing and, and why we think that yeah, it indicates that what has gone on multi-chain is not some sort of hack or rug, right? Is that, you know, in, in a typical like hack or rug, you, you would often see the funds suddenly move very, very quickly across different wallets in order to obfuscate the funds and make sure that the funds are not frozen, right? So in typical hacks, you know, you would see like abnormal movements out of a wallet and then it would be, you know, tumbled, it would be laundered, it would be converted to different assets that would 
like not be able to be frozen, it would be like hard to track, right? Because people know that the blockchain is public, that you can see transactions going in and out. And so as a you know hacker or a rug pull, what you want to do is be able to get access to the funds yourself, right? And not have people realize that you have access to the funds. Otherwise, you know, like the police and stuff will come after you, right? They'll be able to trace it to you. What happened with multi-chain is that when you look at the transactions, say like on the 7th of July, to my knowledge to this day, they've literally just moved from the multi-chain smart contracts or system to these six or seven external water addresses, right? And they're just sitting there, right? They, they haven't moved. They're just sitting there. And, um, you know, it's very easy to trace it because it's just like a single movement from one wallet to another. And so, you know, people have the eyes on those wallets and all of those funds. You know, they, they, they know it's sitting there. Um, and it allowed um, Tether and Circle to freeze the funds, which they did, I think, within one to two days of us notifying of them. And, and, they, and they said they had to get a court order to do it, so I presume that they did. And they did freeze it pretty quickly. And in total, it's about approximately $65 million worth of stable coins on, 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 on Ethereum. So about $62 million was US dollar circle, about three million or so, roughly, was US dollar tether. So you know, I am you know grateful and happy that they were able to freeze it so quickly. But it just demonstrates that you know it, it's unlikely to have been a rug because no like decent or half you know smart rug fool or, or hacker would just move those funds and sit it there for days, allowing it uh, for the opportunity for it to be frozen. So that's that, that's basically what happened around the, the the freezing of assets, which is good um, because obviously it means that you know it, you know if, if it's if it's taken by you know nefarious people at the very least that you know it can't be moved and can't be used. So would you say that the on-chain actions uh, match up with the idea of the Chinese government taking kind of seizing those assets effectively? I, I believe so because it makes sense in the context of. Um, you know, the, the assets aren't stolen by someone. They're they're just they're confiscated or they're frozen by the police. You know, pending some sort of investigation or case that's going on. And what we're trying to figure out is what exactly this investigation is. You know, if, if it really is the the case that Andre outlined, which is what Modichain like have initially told us, or you know, if it's something else to do with you know, like like fraud or some other suspicion or something like that. So that's what we're trying to figure out like ourselves and, and really start from there. Because ultimately what we're trying to achieve, like talking to the police, you know, is it, it, to tell them that, hey, you know, the, the, a lot of the assets that you're holding, uh, you know, don't actually belong to Chinese nationals. And they're not involved in some sort of like fraud or what they call in China, like pyramid selling, which is you know, Ponzi scheme activity, that, that has legitimate user funds owned by, you know, legitimate foreigners, right? But one of the difficulties that we have, as Andre outlined, is that, you know, we don't have a direct claim ourselves, the Fanta Foundation, to the vast majority of those assets because they weren't technically in our possession, right? So what we have to do is, I think, involve other parties who we know lost a lot of money and, 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 and say, and, and, you know, get their approval to maybe represent them when we're talking to the police. So that's one of the difficulties that we're encountering, but we definitely want, you know, to know the police that, hey, you know, these funds belong to all of these users. Here's the proof that we own it and basically put a claim in is is sort of the idea. But first of all, we want to figure out like what, what exactly this investigation is is going on. Because so far at the moment, we've just heard rumors and this and that, but we need more official confirmation. Okay. And how long do you think this will take to play out? 
That's that's the double-edged sword. I mean, anything. It's anyone's guess, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's it's not going to be short. That's the one thing. You know, like like even even in an absolute best case scenario, I don't see this being resolved within the next year. Um, that's just the nature of these investigations and cases. And, and it, sorry, yeah. No, I was just wondering if we could zoom out just for a second, and then we can we can zoom back in. Um, just in terms of like. And I'm curious to get all, all of your thoughts on this. Like this space, I feel like bridging interoperability just and, and then trust has been sort of like really damaged over the past year. Just curious, like what what is standing in the way of like more resilient, robust systems that can kind of link together different chains? And, and how do we, like, what's the perfect future look like? Um, I mean, look, MPC, I think, was one of the, the better technology stacks out there. Um, I mean, Uniswap Labs released a pretty good um, bridge report. But, but the interesting thing about their bridge report is it leans into the trust assumptions. You know, it, it says, look, these bridges are going to have trust actors, how highly can we trust these actors? In other words, is it a big organization? Does it have a lot of backers? Does it have a public risk? You know, how known are they? Um, so, so, so Bridges currently, personally, I think it's a bit of a step back because they're actually, all of them are currently leaning into their trust assumptions. Um, they're, they're glorified multi-sigs. Um, I'm not, not trying to discount any of the work that any of these guys are doing. It's still phenomenal, but they're glorified multi-sigs. Um, versus, you know, something like MPC had the possibility that an, an independent anonymous validator can join the network. And as long as, you know, 2N plus 1 over, th- over 3 of the network is honest actors, um, it would work successfully. So, so, so that's where we still need to get to. And, you know, right now I think bridges aren't, they're all just going, okay, but how can we, how can we just lean into the trust assumptions more? And there's like X amount of, um, there's like a trust gap that, you know, I, I don't know how to quantify how big it is, but it's, it's, it's still there. Yeah. And, and look, the, the, the problem with, with, with the trust factor and, and multi-chain also kind of showed this, you know, I've, I've long since had a fear theory when it comes to decentralization. And that is whatever some regulatory government or private doesn't matter entity can force you to do, they, they will eventually force you to do. So, you know, if your multi-sig has the capacity, and this isn't just for a bridge, you know, this is for anything, this is for a DAO, you name it. If it has the capacity to, let's say, withdraw funds, stop a protocol, anything like that, at some point, there some entity, even if it's a bunch of guys with wrenches that break down your door, you know, someone is going to force you to do that. So the best decentralization is the one where you actually don't have any access, you don't have any rights, you can't do anything. Um, obviously, that's also very, very scary because, you know, for a lot of new protocols, I mean, I've, I've also firsthand seen that backfire where, you know, I've deployed something where I have absolutely no controls on it and then something bad happens and then you're just like, nothing I can do, um, which in it's, is also horrible. But, you, you know, you have to walk that line between 
at the start, I'm going to have some controls to make sure it's safe, but I'm going to try and get rid of that as quickly as possible to make sure that we're safe. Because, I mean, even, even if the police wasn't involved, right? Like if anyone had found out that Zarjun had access to $220 million, someone would have visited his house with a wrench. It's just that straightforward. So, so like there's also, you know, personal safety issues for the guys connected to these keys to these multi-sigs, to these signers, to these validators, whatever they are. Um, anyway, sorry, that's that's a little bit of a tangent, but but you know, that's that's I'm 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 seeing us more and more moving away from decentralization. Now, now don't get me wrong, this is also something that I think is a spectrum. You know, it's not true or false one and zero. Um, like if you're running a business on and it just happens to be an on-chain business, you know, maybe like a circle or a tether. They're great examples. They're they're always going to have trust assumptions. They're always going to have on and off-chain parts. They're never going to be decentralized, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, same for um, I don't know some on-chain exchange hybrid or something. I don't think any of them exist yet, but. Um, you know, but point just being that there isn't an absolute, but with the bridges, I think the absolute is almost necessary. Um, but I mean, like Chainlink just launched their, what, their CCIP. And I mean, that, that again, is just leaning into the trust assumptions, right? Because you already trust their validators for the Oracle. So you might as well trust their validators for the bridging. Um, so I, I, think, I think people have kind of given up on decentralized bridge solutions at this point. It's a really hard problem. I don't blame them. I mean, I'm not working on it, but um, I, I think now it's just how do we make the trust assumption so that five guys with some wrenches can't take over the system? Or at least how do we go from, you know, z- you know you're not going to ever really be at one, but how can you get to like, you know, point eight nine point nine? It's getting closer to that absolute state or at least have a path to that absolute state that you're talking about but i mean that's a that's a conversation that i think has happened for the last five years nonstop. so it's always what is the path to decentralization one thing i wanted to um like andre mentioned in terms of like the length of the investigation um yeah you know it's going to take in our opinion, probably at least like several months, maybe like a year, right? That being said, like what I've been reading about in China is that, you know, it's really, really like quite unpredictable, right? So you know, we don't want to get our expectations up. We want to like keep it um, kind of like like grounded based in like what is likely to occur, right? Which is, you know, if it gets resolved, um, you know, it could take several months, two years, I mentioned before. But at the same time, when someone isn't charged with, in China, but they're just under investigation, um, which we believe is the case with um, Zhao Zhen and possibly, you know, like another engineer or so, uh, given that there's been absolutely no reporting and, and confirmation of any sort of arrest, uh, just a detainment. It means that it means that like practically at any time, um, Zhao Zhen or other multi-chain people could be released. Like, uh, I'm not saying that it's definitely going to happen or it's going to happen tomorrow or next week or, or at all. But it's definitely like a bit unpredictable in that in some cases, people would just get released at like random or seemingly random times. Um, so, you know, that could also occur. Um, but um, at the same time, I don't want people's expectations, uh, you know, to be raised by that. But I'm just saying that like, you know, in this current situation, we still want to find out more information because it is, um, um you, you know, you, usually, you know, the longer that someone is detained for, like, the more likely they are going to be charged with something. 
but it also is like fundamentally unpredictable. How much does this affect kind of the phantom ecosystem and then also the perception of the phantom ecosystem? Because obviously there's a lot of tokens that were created through the multi-chain protocol um, and it was a significant amount of TVL and it was widely used amongst the kind of phantom ecosystem. Um, yeah, how, how much does it impact? I, I mean, uh, obviously the people that lost funds are heavily impacted, um, but... It, it feels bad to say, but you know, it's it's more reputational damage than anything else at this point because we're kind of just dragged along with multi-chain, even though we don't have a direct association with them. Um, I mean, the chain functioned without problems during this entire event. You know, there wasn't a technology failure, there wasn't a critical failure, there wasn't some core mechanism failure. Um, still fastest chain out there, still lowest time to finality, still highest throughput. Um, we've we've you know, we've we've launched a bunch of new incentive programs recently, like the gas monetization, where DAP developers get 15% of the fees and rewards. The ecosystem fund has grown significantly. We have a bunch of new hires. We have a whole new team building out a Rust client. Um, Schultz's work, Professor Schultz and them are almost done. And, you know, that's the new FEM. That's the new storage. So, like, on on all of our metrics, it's 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 going well. And the new releases we have ready are even better. But and 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 then also looking at the assets, right? Like like the majority of Phantom assets were native, you know, like like the 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 spooky swap, which is the the primary AMM, and Spirit Swap, both, you know, their tokens are issued natively, um, Beethoven issued natively, like 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 all of the core assets that make up the chain are native assets. The, the big hit was really USDC. That was the biggest one, which accounted, I think, for like 80% of the 60-odd 60, 60 million TVL. Um, now, that was obviously in a lot of um, AMM pools, which was connected to native assets. So as people were trying to escape those assets or dump it, like obviously the ecosystem as a whole got hurt. Um, but honestly, it's more reputational, which has, has been hard to fight because again you know we're we're one of 25 we're we're we we were 30 percent of the the total amount and i i think it just hit us more significantly because that that 60 mil was a large part of sort of our our on-chain DeFi TVL metrics, if you use a site like DeFi Llama or something else. But, you know, that's 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 not a reflection of any of the tech, of any of the dApps, of any of the work being put in. Um, so so I, I currently see it more as reputational than anything else. And, and not even, it's, it's even worse because, you know, it's not direct reputational, it's by proxy reputational. Because I've, I've gone through a lot of what ifs, right? And then people are like, oh, but why didn't you have more bridges? But, you know, it's not... The, the USDC issued by multi-chain would always have been the USDC issued with multi-chain. Even if we had Wormhole, Axelar, Layer Zero, all of these guys who have now really done a lot to help us and integrate to reach out. But, you know, people people aren't going to use Axelar USDC because in SpookySwap, where they're getting their incentives, those incentives are on multi-chain USDC. So what's the asset they're going to bridge over? You know, so, so even, even if we had pushed for more bridges, it wouldn't have really mattered because the, the dApps are still onboarding the assets. Now, I'm not trying to shift the blame to the dApps. Obviously, they use the assets they see the foundation use. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's all so interconnected that like... But if there were mo more options, they probably would have still 
opted for multi-chain. So you would have still had the same net result. And, you yeah. know, like, like multi-chain, multi-chain had historically worked great. You know, we've never had issues with them. Even, even when the rumors came out about um, Zarjun's arrest, you know, the first thing we did was we checked the bridge. Transfers work fine. You could swap in between it. We reached out to the team. We asked them, hey, is there any risk? Should we bridge the stuff out? They said, no, um, it's under control. And, you know, there was the issue with them not being able to upgrade the router, which we thought was because Arjun had some master key access for the upgrades, not to the assets. And then two weeks later, they fixed that, which was another, you know, good sign because it meant, okay, cool, they're getting the system back under control. And then all of the assets got drained, which I think was the was the big thing. Um Anyway, again, sorry, I digress a lot, but but I think it's more reputational by proxy. So for now, you know, there's there's really two paths. The one path is we keep doing what we were doing in any case. It hurts a little bit because like a lot of our good news is obviously getting droned out just because of the multi-chain events. But our motto has always been we keep building no matter what, so we just graft forward. And then on the other path, we try and do everything in our power to get these assets back and we're, we're, we're considering stuff like, you know, once, once we know more about what's actually happening, you know, we, if, so, so for example, if we know for a fact that those assets are recoverable and they're with the police and it's a, it's a parallel investigation that isn't directly related to anything multi-chain did, you know, we're, we're willing to go as far as to have like the claimants sign over their rights to us. We pay them out so long and we carry the time risk until, you know, eventually those assets are returned. Um, but again, that, that's all reputational. You know, it's not, there's there's nothing internally, nothing in our dev roadmap has changed, nothing in our, you know, marketing or, or our BD has changed. It's really just been the legal team that's been a lot busier than usual. So what, what are you uh, doing right now to, to kind of remedy the situation? Yeah, it's essentially what Andre and I have already been talking about. But we've engaged with a quite a well-known like uh, a law firm that's based in Asia, including in China, because uh, and, and we're working with them, um, you know, to do try and find out more information by the contacts they have in China as to like what has you know been going on, right? And they they did get information that uh, there is like an investigation going on, you know, by the Kongmen police, um, and they are going to be asking the police like a lot more questions about you know the nature of investigation and and to start notifying the police that you know the money that's being held, if it is, if it indeed is being held there is largely owned by, you know, as I mentioned before, like foreigners, not Chinese nationals, and isn't engaged in any, you know, dodgy behavior if it's like what the investigation is about, right? Um, so, you know, we're, we're spending our own money um, in terms of, you know, fees and time and effort to help solve this, you know, not, not just for, you know, the phantom users, but for all the multi-chain users as a whole. Um, we have been in contact with a variety of other parties and 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 projects not um, associated with Phantom that you know also lost a significant amount of money and want to you know help out when they can and you know, want to know more information that sort of thing. Um, we also have been in contact with a few uh, team members of of the multi chain team and been trying to get information from them as best we can. Um, so you know that's what we're really focused on right now, specifically around around the multi chain situation and. You know, once we have more information about what has actually been going on, we can make uh, a, a few better decisions uh, a bit down the line, as, as Andre just um, outlined. Okay, and what's the? Is there a possibility where Phantom could become an L two 
uh, a layer two network on Ethereum. Mm. That is a very, very passionate topic you just raised on my part. Um, let's 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 first start with what's a layer two. Can, can anyone on this call give me a definitive definition of a layer two? Because uh, you're you're going to tell me it's something that scales Ethereum. None, nothing. Arbitrum, Optimism, Polygons, New ZKVM doesn't matter which one. None of them scale Ethereum. If you connect to the Ethereum network, there's there's no improvements there. It's as slow as ever. You switch to the Arbitrum network or you switch to the Optimism network and then you do stuff there. And then let's let's say something goes wrong, right? Let's say the canonical bridge between Ethereum and Arbitrum that secures all of those assets, something goes wrong. Then the assumption is that you can use fraud proof or you can use roll-up proofs or, or whatever it is, optimistic proofs, to then go back to the Ethereum network and prove that the assets do belong to you so that you can withdraw it from that system. Now, now that works in a complete vacuum. As soon as you have other bridges, as soon as an XLR, a wormhole, a layer zero, anything like that integrated, that's no longer true because there's not one part of access. So even if something goes wrong with that bridge, I can still swap out my assets via one of the other bridges. So in other words, those fraud and optimistic proofs don't matter anything anymore because they don't give you that security guarantees because of the other bridges just invalidated it. So, so layer twos are side chains. That's all they are. And optimistic or fraud proof or any kind of roll-up tech is really just a new kind of bridge. Okay. So that rant aside, we have been looking at optimistic stacks, Arbitrum stack, all of these things to see how their canonical bridges use these proofs to be able to have higher security guarantee. But the real layer two technology is not what's happening on the other side. It's actually what's happening on the bridge. It's when the assets transfer from Ethereum to the other assets that are actually the power. So are we considering one of their stacks to become our own canonical bridge? Yes. Yes, we are. And we are actively investigating that. Should we adopt or rather, when we adopt that bridge, does that make us a layer two? No, no, because a layer two is just a sidechain. Just multi-chain bridging assets from Ethereum to Phantom already makes it a sidechain. Um, so, you know, that's, sorry. I, I, I get very passionate when it comes to the specific definitions, um, but, you know, technically it's it's a bridge and technically it's a sidechain. Okay, so are you saying that pot potentially you could have Phantom and then it would have the same connection to Ethereum as say Optimism does, um, but then you would just disagree on the name of it. Well, it's, it's just layer twos by definition are supposed in theory to scale the potential throughput of the L1 that secures it. Now in practice, that's just not true. You know, like there's, what's, what's the difference on a user or an interaction level between someone using Avalanche versus someone using Optimism. There's, there's no difference, none whatsoever. But Avalanche isn't an L2 to Ethereum. Got it. So you're you're saying it's it's basically closer to it's closer to an Avalanche than it would be to Arbitrum. Well, so 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 L2 technology, as far as I'm concerned, is a new kind of bridging technology to allow for native assets to via slightly more secure mechanisms, transport from chain A to chain B. The problem is the security you gain 
from that bridge is invalidated once other bridges in, in, integrate into your ecosystem. So like, again, a little bit of a double-edged sword. So, so like it, it does make the canonical assets safer, which is awesome. And that's why we're investigating it. But at the same time, if something goes wrong and people try and get their assets out, they're not really going to be able to because it's likely that those assets were already bridged out via other mechanisms. The only times it would really work is if there's a complete chain halt. So, you know, nothing can happen on that chain. No one can bridge out. No one can move assets. Then it can s sort of, you know, work as a rollback mechanism. But I mean, in that case, you could have just had an emergency breaker that allows withdraw only and kind of end up with the exact same result. Um, anyway, I'm not discounting the tech, like optimism stack, all of that stuff, really amazing. Um, I, I, I do think they're a little bit more centralized. They need to be, you know, all of no, them. No, no, you're, 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 you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not. You're not necessarily disagreeing with the tech. I think you you take issue with maybe the way in yeah. which people categorize yeah. it's, it. It's the narrative. It's not the tech. And that's been my issue with a lot of things in this space. You know, it's it's the stories people try and tell to make things sound a lot fancier than they are. Um, that doesn't discount how good the tech is. But you know, like like it's it's good enough that we can call it what it is. It doesn't have to you know have new names or new narratives. One thing um, I also wanted to mention about like these like so-called layer twos, right? Is that the reason why they're able to execute transactions faster and with lower transactions fees compared to say like um, Ethereum, right? Is because they're simply been trading essentially um, security for performance, right? So the reason why like Ethereum is so expensive is because um, it requires like a lot of computation to confirm a transaction, right? And there's limited space, there's limited throughput, scalability, et cetera, right? I mean, what these like so-called layers twos do, which, as Andre has pointed out, are essentially just layer ones that bridge to another layer one, i.e., Ethereum or sidechains, um, are that they just confirm transactions in a much more centralized manner, right? So you simply just have fewer validators validating the transactions, and you have like single points of failure, right? And so with Phantom, what the key difference is is that even if we use like the bridging technology to connect to Ethereum and, you know, raw assets from Ethereum to Phantom and vice versa. Um, it doesn't change any of the underlying security properties of the Phantom network itself. You know, what we have been interested in from the very beginning and why the Phantom project began was because, you know, we wanted to optimize the trade-off between security and performance, right? Which, you know, you'll never get like, you know, as, as great performance as having just a single database on a distributed system just because you always need, you know, more computation to confirm transactions in a single computer. But... What you can do is via various smart techniques at the consensus level, like with asynchronous processing of transactions, or at other parts of the stack, like with the virtual machine and the storage system that Professor Schultz and his team are working on, is that you can optimize the trade-off such that you can still maintain like a large um, amount of security while actually not having as much of a degradation in performance as you add nodes, right? So to be clear, like, you know, using any sort of raw technology to Ethereum, what we essentially want to do is just make it a lot easier and secure for people to move assets from Ethereum onto Phantom and to use the Phantom technology. But the Phantom technology in its current form, you know, will be a lot better than it currently is. But, you know, all, all, all the technical progress that we've made and we'll continue to make will stay pretty much the same. Um, it's just a way for us as Andre mentioned, to get access to more liquidity on, say, Ethereum by using, you know, uh, this bridging technology, which essentially is what the innovation is from, you know, Arbitrum, Optimism and, and other like so-called L2s.
Yeah, okay. And if Phantom added uh, optimistic rollups for Ethereum, does that mean if people were making kind of Ether transactions on Phantom through this, they would the Phantom Net would, would then need to pay, or is it these users would be paying uh, kind of transaction fees in Ether on the Ethereum network. Well, so 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 there's 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 two different things there. Now, number one, even ignoring Phantom Quick, right? If you're on or if you're on something like Optimism or etc., and you do a transaction there, and and you pay an ETH, you you pay an ETH because that network chose that you pay in their wrapped ETH asset. You're not actually executing a transaction on Ethereum, and you're not actually paying in ETH. Um, that's just what they decided is the asset that they use for their fee structure, but it's their rolled up or whatever you want to call it, wrapped peg, doesn't matter, version of ETH that you're doing the transaction in. Like that transaction you do is never going to appear on the Ethereum network. So, so, so that's thing number one, you know, so, so, so it doesn't matter if we use an optimistic rollup as a bridge to bridge assets over to Phantom. You know, anything that happens on the Phantom network is still happening on the Phantom network. That's why I call them sidechains L1s. Um, the part where, and, and this depends on which implementation we go with, the part where these networks do pay Ethereum is, so, so, so in a case of, um, well, again, it depends on the fraud mechanism and where your data availability is, but let's go with the worst case scenario where you know you, you take a batch of all of the transactions and you write that to ETH. Now, the reason you do that isn't because those transactions are actually happening on Ethereum. You're writing them there so that the bridge is aware of the state of what addresses have what assets. So that then if something happens on the, on the other network, it breaks for some reason and can no longer do transactions. You can then tell Ethereum, hey, you know the latest states. So you know my wallet has a thousand USDC. Here's my proof that it's my wallet. Here's my proof that this is the last state. And then you have, let's say seven days for someone else to provide a different proof to say that you're lying. But if no one does within seven days, I can withdraw my thousand USDC. So, so what, what these networks do when they pay Ethereum, that is when they are writing these batches or these proofs or these claims to the Ethereum network. Um, it isn't actually required for the bridge to function, and it's got nothing to do with the actual uh, transactions on the layer two. So I think it's just important to have that differentiation. So in Phantom's case, let's assume we go with a full um, transaction history, full data availability on Ethereum, then yes, Whenever we want to write a snapshot to Ethereum, which is configurable by our bridge, let's say once a day, we would write the snapshot of the current account states to Ethereum, and that would be paid for in ETH because that's written to an ETH smart contract. Um, but that's like a fallback mechanism at best. It's not actually required. And why did you make the decision to kind of return to Phantom at the end of last year? Well, so so my my distance from Phantom was only from a public perspective. I was receiving so much bad press at that time that I thought it would negative, negatively impact Phantom. Um, you can chat to anyone in the organization. They all know I was still there. I was still working. I was still doing my day-to-day. -day. Um, I mean, since 2019, it's been pretty much my full-time business. Um, I just thought it would do more reputational damage than harm. It was actually Michael that finally convinced me that he thinks it's more important that you know, like it's it's what I do 24-7, so people should know. Um, and I finally caved after a few months of attrition and then just, you know, decided to to admit. But it wasn't actually a leave and back. It was just a, a public distancing, which at the time I thought was better for the project. So 
you could say you you said that this could take a year to play out. What variables could either accelerate or impede the process? I know visibility isn't super clear, but do you have a sense? Yeah, look, look. There's, I mean, we've 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 run a bunch of positive and a bunch of negative theories to try and see what happens. Like, I mean, best case scenario is if a well, not necessarily a best case scenario, but what I consider to be a quickly resolved scenario is if a bigger uh, China-based and or offshore organization gets involved, is able to say, look, I, I mean, even even if someone like Chain Analysis, right, if if they if they had any say there and they could go and be like, hey, here's the proof that that the the assets that you, local police, think are, is involved in the scam is not actually to do with multi-chain. It was just bridged off. Here is actually where it ended up. You know, something like that is already enough to sort of drop the case from them. Um, uh, another quick way is if we can get enough people that are offshore to China capable of saying, hey, these are our assets. We bridge this stuff get those embassies involved so that, you know, it's a little bit of a political event to be able to say, but these assets do not belong to multi-chain, so you need to revert them. Um, the normal case scenario is just where the local police need to continue their investigation until they find the natural conclusion that the assets aren't there. I think that's sort of the longest one. Um, there's a th- few more conspiracy theorist ones, which I don't really want to raise, but, you know, it's, it's that this is a kind of extortion and it's not... You know, and then it also resolves quickly after they get their pay cut. Um, but until we have more more information from what's happening on the ground, um, we can't we can't say much. I mean, half of half of our time the last few weeks have just been spent on trying to get confirmation that this is in Kunming and it is Zhaojun and they are under investigation. And and we've gotten those three ticked off now. So now dialogue can start. But you know now. Now the very next question is, what rights do we have to initiate this dialogue? So that's why we're now trying to kind of get a consortium of all of these chains together, try and identify who are the big holders, get them to, in some extent, you know, assign their rights to us so that we can continue these conversations. Um, but you know, it's 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 a very different world. You know, it's not a tech problem. It's not a in in some ways. I'm going to feel very bad saying this, but in some ways, like a hack or exploit is actually easier because like then we can talk to a black hat or we can talk to white hats or we can negotiate like this is police and legal. You know, it's out of our domain. Well, I think we'll we'll leave it there. Really appreciate um, everyone joining this evening, evening for me at least. Um, and we'll uh, continue to follow this closely and appreciate the added clarity that you've provided. Hope it helped. It's definitely interesting. I feel like there's a few stories out of the out of this show. Um, you know, Phantom may add optimistic rollups, but we're not going to call it a layer two. It's just a bridge. Here's why. Just a bridge. It's just a bridge. <laughs> just a bridge. Okay. Thank you so much. And ladies and gentlemen, the scoop will be back for you again with another great guest, maybe two, maybe another co-host. Hope you have a great night. <laughs>